Hello, friend. Thanks so much for downloading this podcast. And with all my heart, I hope you hear something that edifies, encourages, equip, enlightens, and then engages you in the marketplace of ideas. But before you go and before you listen, I want to take a quick moment and explain to you this month's truth tool. The book is called I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith. You know, it's paramount as followers of Christ that we not only know what we believe, but why we believe it. So questions like heaven and hell, angels, the Trinity, all of these are foundational issues for believing Christians. But sometimes we don't fully understand what it is we believe about Christianity. So the book, I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith is just that. It's concise And it's a wonderful guide to explain to you the cornerstones of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. It's yours for a gift of any amount because In the Market with Janet Parshall is a listener-supported broadcast. We stay on the air because you pray and give. So if you'd like this month's Truth Rule, just call 877-JANET-58. Ask for a copy of I Believe. That's 877-JANET-58. Or you can go online to InTheMarketWithJanetParshall.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. If a gift of any amount, we'll send it to you as our way of saying thank you. While you're on that website, you might want to take a moment, scroll down just a little bit farther, and there's a description of what it means to be a partial partner. These are people who give at a level of their own choosing, and they give every month. They get the truth tool if they ask for it every single month, and they'll also get a newsletter, only people that do, that includes an audio portion that only goes to my partial partners. So if you want to be a partial partner or you're just interested in giving one time to get a copy of I Believe, 877-JANET-58 is the route to go, 877-JANET-58, or online at inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. I Believe, a great book for you to put in your backpack as you continue your pilgrim's progress. Now, Please enjoy the podcast. Hi, friends. This is Janet Parshall, and I want to welcome you to the best of In the Market. Today's program is pre-recorded, so our phone lines are not open. But I do hope you'll enjoy today's edition of the best of In the Market with Janet Parshall. There's within my heart a melody Jesus whispers sweet and low Fear not, I am with thee, peace be still In all of life's ebb and flow Though sometimes he leads through waters deep Trials fall across the way Though sometimes the path There's a time when some people would have said, you will never take that hymn and make it sound like that. That old time song that we've sung since we were knee high to a grasshopper in Sunday school. Mm-mm, no way, no how. I have a funny feeling that the reason you hear renditions of hymns like that now is because of something that took place back in the 60s and 70s. It was called the Jesus Movement, or the Jesus Revolution, and change a country it did. Welcome to In the Market with Janet Parshall. Oh, I am so looking forward to this hour because I'm... (laughs) 
I'm going to date myself big time. And come on, some of you are as old as I am, all right? 60s and 70s, what was happening? Oh, man, it was, if it feels good, do it. Tie-dyed t-shirts, love beads, you know, sexual revolution, protestations in the streets and at college campuses against what was going on in Vietnam. The civil rights movement was happening in this country. There were bombings as a result of change that we were trying to do in this country. But in the midst of all of that... There was an unbelievable revolution taking place around Jesus, an amazing movement. And we're going to take a look at it this hour because the man I'm about to introduce you, while he's no stranger to a single person listening to this broadcast, is a man who was directly impacted by this Jesus revolution. So he writes about it along with Ellen Vaughn in a brand new book called Jesus Revolution, how God transformed an unlikely generation, and boy, is that true, and how he can do it again today. Can I get an amen on that? This is In the Market with Janet Parshall. I may open the phone lines up for questions later on, but right now I want to bring Greg Laurie into the conversation. He is senior pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship. Do you know there are campuses both in California and Hawaii? Because, hey, somebody's got to surf there. He began his pastoral ministry at the age of 19, leading a Bible study of 30 people. Oh, my, how things have changed. Now Harvest is one of the biggest churches in the U.S. of A. More than 5.6 million people have attended Greg's Harvest Crusade since 1990. A half a million plus have registered their profession of faith through these outreaches. He's authored more than 70 books. He has his own radio broadcast called A New Beginning. It's carried on a thousand stations across the country, and he's a fabulous author. And boy, I'll tell you what, this is going to be a wonderful hour. If you believe that Jesus is exactly who he said he is, if you believe in the tumult of this cultural revolution of the 60s, and those of us who live there know it was nothing short of a revolution— If you woke up this morning and thought, this country's on the cusp of another revolution, and we are starting to see more and more people walk away from Jesus, can he once again change a generation? That's what we're going to focus on this hour. Greg, the warmest of welcomes. Thank you. You have a thousand things you could be doing as you're heading that church, and you're giving me an hour of your time. How can I say thank you? I really appreciate it. Well, you've already said it, and I'm happy to do it with you, Janet. I appreciate your support over the last couple of years and interviewing me as our crusades come around and our whole big Bible billboard <laughs> controversy, you know, so it's great to be on with you. And, and really it all started for me back in 1970 when I experienced my own Jesus revolution, but you know, I wasn't the only one, a whole generation of people did. And I don't think people realize how much the church of today was impacted by what yes. happened way back then. And that's one of the biggest takeaways of the book. It really reminds me, I had to stop and say, that's right. If there hadn't been the Jesus movement, I don't know if some of the things we're experiencing today would be were there. For example, that rendition of the hymn that we just heard, but not to get ahead of myself. You talk about this in the book, and Greg, you've been so open about it, so I don't feel I'm violating your privacy, but I think... As you tell your story, not just the impact of the entire movement on a generation and a culture, but it starts with how it impacts an individual. I would love for you to share what your background was like and why you were a kid who was really roughing it in California in those days. And what was your background like? Tell me about your home. Jenna, my mother was a beautiful woman. I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say she was a dead ringer for Marilyn Monroe. And my mom was raised in a in a Southern Baptist church, pretty strict one, pretty strict parents. And she ran away from home at a very young age. She eloped, and she went on a series of marriages. Like, she was married and divorced seven times. 
had a bunch of boyfriends in between, and she became a raging alcoholic. So mm-hmm. during one of her flings in Long Beach, California, with some sailor, uh, she got pregnant, and uh, and she had the baby, and found some guy that would agree to be on the birth certificate who was not the biological father. His name was Kim. Well, the child's name was Greg, and that child is me. So, mm-hmm. you know, I followed my mother around. Her name was Charlene. It was sort of like Charlene's wild ride. And, you know, and she put me in some precarious positions, and I was exposed to things at a very early age no child should be exposed to. Basically, my mother would drink to excess and pass out every night. And so I had to grow up. In some ways, I was more the parent than the child. And so, you know, this was a crazy way to be raised. So now fast forward, I'm in my high school years, and I'm getting into kind of the social scene, and I'm drinking and smoking. And one day it dawns on me, I'm just like my mother. I don't want to live this way. But instead of going toward faith, which I knew little about, I I veered toward drugs because this is now late 60s and the Beatles and others are telling us that, you know, drugs are the answer. Drugs are how you will find, you know, an awareness of the meaning of life and so forth. And I bought in to the mythology of that and I got heavily into drugs. I was basically smoking weed every day and taking LSD in the weekend. So I was going the wrong way fast, but something changed all of that. You bet. You bet. And we're going to find out about that something or someone when we get back. What a privilege. We get to spend the hour with Greg Laurie. Brand new book out called Jesus Revolution, How God Transformed an Unlikely Generation and How He Can Do It Today. Again, we're going to come right back with Greg more after this. The truths of the Christian faith are powerfully clear and wonderfully deep, but sometimes we don't fully understand what we believe. That's why I've chosen I Believe, a concise guide to the essentials of the Christian faith as this month's truth tool. Know the foundations of faith and reinvigorate your walk with Jesus. Ask for your copy of I Believe when you give a gift of any amount to In the Market. Call 877-JANET-58, that's 877-JANET-58, or go to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. What's in the name that came to bring such wonder? That royalty would come to seek the way. And the wise men traveled far, following the star, just to catch a glimpse of heaven face to face. The name that spoke the word. Then to make my life complete, he came to live inside of me. Oh, Jesus is the sweetest name of all. Oh, dear friend, Babby Mason, if you're listening, you know I love your girlfriend and I love this song. Just think about that. He knows every star. Oh, but he knows us personally. Takes your breath away, does it not? You're broken. 
You just think you're beyond repair. You think there's nothing in this life that can satisfy that hole in your heart. I give you Greg Laurie. Doesn't know who his biological dad is. His mom struggles with alcoholism, married and divorced seven times. Alcohol doesn't want to be like his mom, so he segues to drugs. Greg, let me ask you a question, because I have this luxury of a little extra time with you. You know, alcoholism is the symptom. It's not really the disease. Your mom, you said, had a Southern Baptist background, so she knew the merit of marriage, but there was a hole in her heart. Why do you think it was that she'd go through these relationships, but then she'd move them into marriage? Whatever pain was there clearly was not getting satisfied. My heart aches for her. Janet, it's true. There was a hole in her heart. And, you know, my mom reminds me a lot of the woman at the well. Uh, the mm. woman at the well was married and divorced five times. My mom, seven. But it was the same thing. And Jesus said to that woman at the well, if you drink of the water I give, you'll never thirst again. And, you know, just kind of to fast forward in my story, I prayed for my mother for years and years and years. And she was always very close to the message of the gospel. But toward the end of her life, her lifestyle caught up with her, all the drinking, all the smoking, all the partying and hard living. And she had to get dialysis three times a week. She looked like she was 90 when she was 70, and her health was failing her. And I was able, a month before she died, to lead her in a prayer to really commit her life to Christ. A recommitment, a first-time commitment, I don't know. But she committed her life to Jesus, and I'm thankful that happened. But kind of going back now, so I'm I'm into drugs, and I'm seeing the emptiness of that. So for me, it was like process of elimination. I looked at the adult world of my mother. We lived at times in affluence, other times in poverty. And I thought, well, the answer isn't there. Then I looked at the drug culture of that I was in, and I thought, the answer is not here either. Where is it? Well, on my high school campus, uh, the Jesus movement was in full swing. There were kids on my school campus called Jesus Freaks that would carry their Bibles to school, talk about their faith in God. And I thought they were crazy people, you know, but I had to admit they were happy, crazy people. And so one day I was walking across my campus and I saw the Jesus Freaks meeting on the front lawn, singing songs about God. And I decided to sit down and just watch them. You know, I've always been a people observer and uh, so I, I sat there and observed them, and I, and as I watched them sing their songs, sing their songs about God, I thought, you know, that they're crazy. There's no way I could ever become one of them. But I have to admit, they look pretty happy. And then a novel thought occurred to me: What if they're right and God mm-hmm. can be known? I immediately dismissed it because, because of all the things I'd seen in my childhood, I just didn't really believe such a thing could be possible. And then, uh, and. Then I kept watching them, and they intrigued me. And then a guy got up to speak, and I talk about him in my book, and he played a key Mm -hmm. role in the Jesus movement. Uh, His name was Lonnie Frisbee. He was a young, hippie preacher, early 20s. He had hair down past his shoulders, a long brown beard. He looked like Jesus. But as this guy who looked like Jesus started to talk, I heard the real Jesus speak through him. And I never made the connection of knowing Jesus today. I always thought of Jesus as a historical figure. He came, he died, he rose again. Maybe I wasn't sure. He was probably up there in heaven. I wasn't certain, but I thought he might be. But here's a guy talking about Jesus right now, having a relationship with him. And then he made a statement that was like a lightning bolt from heaven to my heart. He said, Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. And I looked at the Christians and I thought, well, they're for him and I'm not one of them. Does that mean I'm against them? 
And I thought, yes, I guess it does mean that. And then he said, if you want to become a Christian and accept Christ, get up and walk forward. This is like, again, on the front lawn of a high school campus at lunchtime. Some hmm. kids get up and walk there. And I thought, there's no way I would ever do that. Next thing I knew, I was up there praying. And that was the day Christ came into my life. You know, Greg, so many interesting questions about that. Because you didn't know who your dad was, that there was a man's name on your birth certificate that wasn't your biological father, it would seem right. perfectly logical and perfectly reasonable that you would have a distrust of any father figures. You come yeah. to the father by way of Christ. That could have been a deterrent. Yeah. Why wasn't it? Well, I think it was the absence of a father. Um Going back to my mom, you know, her father, my grandfather, uh, Charles, I called him Daddy Charles because they were from the South. I lived with her parents, my grandparents, for a couple of years. He was a very strict disciplinarian. My grandmother, a little more nurturing, but, you know, um, it it was kind of an interesting way they raised my mother and me as well because I sort of experienced her childhood a little bit living with her parents. And so... I think that, you know, she never really had a warm, loving, embracing father. And so she went off looking for some guy to fill a hole in her life. Well, I didn't have any father. It was a blank slate. So instead of overcoming a father who maybe didn't do as good of a job as he could have, I had a big hole there. So when I came to this idea of knowing God as a father through Jesus, this was very appealing to me, and I was able to embrace it pretty quickly. Mm, Wow. Greg Laurie is with us. We're walking through history, uh, not just from the 60s and 70s, but world history, the kind of history that changed the world when Jesus paid the penalty for us all. The Jesus Revolution, new book by Greg Laurie, along with Ellen Vaughn, how God transformed an unlikely generation and how he can do it again today. More with Greg right after this. Jesus, your name is power. Jesus, your name is might. Jesus, your name will break every stronghold. Jesus, your name is life. Oh, and there's just something about that name. We're talking about a revolution that bears his name. It was the Jesus Revolution and what it did for this culture in the 1960s and 1970s. In his new book, Greg Laurie writes really not just his personal passage of change, but really we follow American history, what is happening during that period and the unrest, the tumult that was taking place. And it was not unlike the day and age in which we find ourselves now. Cultural unrest split right down the middle. Americans literally at ideological war with one another. And yet in the midst of all of this emerges this revolution around Jesus. So, Greg, there you are. You step forward at a high school, like we could do that today, oh my, and you accept the Lord as your personal Savior, but you, it seems to me, might not necessarily have a point of reference for, note the air quotes, church. So what was it about the Jesus movement that attracted you, other than the person of Jesus, obviously, that's a self-evident truth, but the music, the practices, you know, the kind of long-haired stuff, you know, I'll break it to you slowly here, but Christians can be uptight in case no one's told you that before. So how did you handle all of this, and what did you find to be so appealing? I found authenticity. 
I, I mm. filmed something that was real, you know, because the whole hippie dream was all men, you know, peace, love, and brotherhood, love your brother, and it was just hypocrisy, and I saw that quickly. Everything the hippies promised, the Christians delivered. I found true peace from a relationship with God. I found the brotherhood, you know, among fellow believers, and I found the purpose I was looking for, and I didn't need drugs anymore. It was not that hard for me to turn my back on drugs. I wasn't even enjoying them when I was doing it. So it was kind of a welcome relief to put that in the rearview mirror. But I walked right into the middle of a spiritual revival, and I didn't know it was a revival because it was literally my first encounter with the church. Now, I went to church with my grandparents when I was a little boy. It was very formal. Uh, all I remember is I had to be very quiet and listen, and I thought it was boring. But here now was life. Uh, people around me, yeah, a lot of kids my age, uh, but people that were older, people that were younger. That's what I liked about it. It was diverse because the whole thing of the hippie culture was, you know, let's like break down racial barriers and ra- brace, you know, break down all these things that separate us. Well, they were still divided along predictable lines. But here in the church, and this was Calvary Chapel, uh, circa 1970, uh, the full-blown revival has hit. And right before our eyes, we didn't know it, but contemporary Christian worship was being born and contemporary Christian music, a whole genre, was being born right there. It was, for us, it was just young kids who were musicians coming to Christ, wanting to express their faith in a way that was uh, real to them. And so, you know, it was a a spiritual awakening. And in fact, I make a case for this in my book, Jesus Revolution. It was the last great spiritual revival in America. Mm -hmm. And I wrote Mm -hmm. it with the purpose of saying, this can happen again. I was very intentional to not merely take a walk down memory lane. I give you context and historical Mm -hmm. backdrop. And Ellen Vaughn did a great job writing this book. It's actually, I'm in the third person. In other words, It's not me speaking to you through the book. It's my life being spoken of by Ellen and my wife's life and and two other characters, Chuck Smith and Lonnie Frisbee, explaining how this all came about. But I I wrote it as though I was sitting across uh, a cup of coffee at a table with a millennial. And I'm saying, here's what happened not that long ago, and here's how it can happen again. That's what I love about it. And by the way, I'm so glad you noted the third person because you're the narrator in some respects. We're walking alongside you through this experience. You brought up Chuck's mm-hmm. name. You cannot talk about the Jesus Revolution without talking about Chuck. What did he do that was so atypical? He didn't know that a revolution was going to start and he was going to be very much a part yeah. of it. What made him so different? Yeah, well, you know, you talk about a father figure. He was a father figure to a lot of kids. And he was sort of like the cool dad who wasn't trying to be cool. You know, the most uncool <laughs> thing a person can do is try to be cool. You got to just be you. I come back to the word authenticity, you know, and I think sometimes pastors, we want to be like hipsters and not just be who you are. Okay. That's the coolest thing you can do is just be you love people Tell him the truth of God's word. But anyway, Chuck was not a hipster guy. He didn't have long hair. He wasn't trying to be one of us. He owned his age. 
but he was exactly what we needed. We needed an adult in the room. We needed someone to say, all right, kids, uh, let's open our Bibles, and here's what God has to say. But, you know, I can also liken him to your favorite uncle. You know, instead of a parent that you're afraid of, he was the uncle that would tell you stories after the meal, and everybody wanted to hear him talk. That was Chuck. He just exuded warmth and you know, for me, I, I was rebellious as a kid because all the adult role models I knew were not a good example to me. And so when I got in school, I was constantly in trouble. They were trying to expel me from schools. In fact, one school they wanted to expel me from. My mother came in and said, I'll sue you if you expel him. <laughs> so, you know, but I, was, I deserved to be expelled, Janet. I was the worst kid. But, you know, I was just kicking at these adult role models. And all of a sudden, I came into an environment where there was an older person that I respect him. And Mm -hmm. so that that was, he was a key person, but there was one other key person that helped make this explosion happen. Yeah, let's talk about him when we get back. It's an absolutely fascinating book. It really is Greg's story, but he walks you through the pages of history. What happened in this country in the 60s and 70s? And you heard him say this was the last great spiritual revival. I second that opinion. So if it happened then, could it happen now? That's the big question before us back after this. friends, this is Janet Parshall. I want to remind you that you're listening to the best of In the Market, and today's program is pre-recorded, so our phone lines aren't open. But please enjoy the rest of today's broadcast right here on the best of In the Market with Janet Parshall. Jesus told us to go into the world and not run away from it, and he didn't say it would be easy. In the Market with Janet Parshall is a program designed to come alongside and walk with you into the marketplace of ideas. Parshall Partners are those friends who support our program on a regular monthly basis. They know the mandate of influencing and occupying until he comes, so why don't you become part of the inner circle of support? Call 877-JANET-58 or go to inthemarketwithjanetparshall.org. a revolution, a movement in the 1960s and 70s that bears his name. Greg Laurie is spot on when he says it really was the last great revival in this country. But it doesn't have to be the last one, period. If Jesus can transform, and he certainly did, an entire culture, an entire generation in the 1960s and 70s, can he do it again now? I I woke up this morning, stuck my little head out my tent, and Last time I checked, things were pretty messed up. Could we use another spiritual awakening in this country? I think so. And what Greg Laurie does in his new book, Jesus Revolution, is he walks us through, as a third-person narrative, he walks us through history in the 60s and 70s, reminds us how chaotic things were. If you lived it, you know it. If you don't, read it and find out. But if God can move in the midst of that, can he do it again? So, Greg, we were talking about Chuck Smith, and you rightfully point out that you can't talk about the Jesus movement and just mention Chuck. There's somebody else profoundly important as well. Talk about him. Yes, and with a very unusual name. His name was Lonnie Frisbee. And uh, Lonnie was that guy who was speaking on my high school campus when I heard the gospel for the first time in a way I understood. So, 
Chuck, you know, had a heart for reaching the young generation. He's a traditional guy. He he doesn't know where to start. And he literally started praying, Lord, bring one of these young hippie kids into my life. And so uh, his daughter brought a genuine, living, breathing Christian hippie home one day. His name is Lonnie Frisbee. And so Chuck meets Lonnie. You could have not had two people that were less alike. <laughs> what they had in common is they were human beings, and they both believed in Jesus. Therein, the, the similarities end, and the differences begin. But Chuck and Lonnie were like an explosive combination. It was like nitro met glycerin. Because what Chuck allowed was he allowed Lonnie, who was very charismatic and, and very appealing to kids, to come and, and minister. So what Lonnie did for Chuck is he was like this very attractive uh effective communicator, but Chuck stabilized Lonnie. And so the two of them together, it was, you know, for lack of a better word, magic. It was supernatural. Mm -hmm. The Lord blessed it. And so we sort of came for Lonnie and we stayed for Chuck. Lonnie (laughs) actually was only there for sort of the initial explosion of the Jesus movement. He was there maybe two years. Then he left and then it went into phase two and phase three and and on. But but he he played a key role. And so in the book, I try to be very honest, Jan. It. Uh, you know, some people want to write Lonnie out of the script, and others want to lionize him. And, and I tried to g- give a balanced look at him. I got to know him quite well. And so I tell the true story. And, and here's the bottom line. Uh, one way to describe the Jesus movement is it was a beautiful mess. You know, it, mm. God does not always do things in an orderly way. And, and let me restate that because that doesn't sound right. God does things in a way that does not seem orderly to us. It's orderly to him. Uh, he works in unusual ways at times. I mean, look at the Bible. Why would God use a guy like David who was an adulterer and in effect a murderer? Why would God continue to anoint a man named Samson when he persisted in his immorality? Why would God, you know, give a second chance to a guy who openly denied Jesus, naming Simon Peter? And that's what I mean by a beautiful mess. These were not perfect people that God used in the Jesus movement, but despite them, uh, God worked through them. And and this was a great spiritual awakening that, you know, still impacts the church, uh, impacts the church to this day. Craig, there are two interesting aspects to this that I want to dig into a little bit, and that is, I understand that in some respects, the, the Jesus movement was completely countercultural. You said it beautifully before. What the yeah. hippies of the secular world were saying couldn't be delivered. What the people who followed in the Jesus movement did, yeah. while they might look somewhat the same on the outward appearance, they were fulfilling. They made a proclamation and they stepped into it because they were compelled to yeah. because of their relationship with Jesus. But what about, note the air quotes again, the church? I mean, I was a straight-laced Bible church kid when all of this was going on, and I'm looking over to the mm-hmm. West Coast going, I don't know, that might be a little bit too radical. Well, then the more I got to know <laughs> yeah. about it, the more I found it to be intriguing. So was there pushback from the church? You mentioned Bill Bright. You mentioned Billy Graham in the book. They were very yeah. much supportive of this. Why do you think that was? Yeah. And why was were some in the church saying, oh, no, 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 that's too much rock and roll for me? Well, speaking of rock and roll, this is around the time that John Lennon famously said the Beatles were more popular than Jesus. And there was mm-hmm. all this pushback over that statement. But in some ways, for some kids, it was true. The church was missing it culturally. The church was answering questions no one was asking, and they weren't answering the questions that were being asked. So God sends a spiritual awakening. Young hippie hippie kids are coming into churches. 
I think for the churches, Janet, that opened their doors to this, they had a Jesus movement. For the churches that closed their doors, they did not. But yeah. Bill Bright, founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, and of course Billy Graham, both acknowledged this was a work of God. And that really helped a lot because, you know, Billy Graham at that moment was at the peak of his influence. And so for Billy to endorse this movement, in fact, he wrote a book called The Jesus Generation. Uh, for him to endorse this movement was very helpful, and it all kind of culminated in 1972 for a, an event sponsored by Campus Crusade that Billy spoke at called Explo. And this was in the Cotton Bowl in Texas, and 80,000 people showed up, uh, Jesus people basically, and what a lineup of talent. They had uh, Johnny Cash, Chris Christopherson, Larry Norman, who's sort of the founder, he's sort of the father of Jesus music or uh, Jesus movement music a band called Love Song from our neck of the woods at Calvary Chapel. So, but it it was all happening. And, and Billy, I think, had the spiritual perception to see this was a movement of the Holy Spirit that he fully embraced. So that raises an intriguing question. And by the way, friends, you know, you know, you know, and there's a book that I love. I always feel like I'm tossing a stone over the top of the pond. There's so much more in the book. So I hope this piques your curiosity and you're going to read Jesus Revolution because when Greg is telling you, he's giving you the Cliff's Notes. There's so much more. So I kept thinking when I was reading this, Greg, that I know the adage, and there are so many people listening right now who probably struggle with this. Wait a minute. I'm in the world. I'm not of it. You know, if you're wearing the beads and the shirts and the long hair, aren't you of the world? Okay, that's an interesting question, but then it raises a bigger question, which is, if I look at the church today in America, when we're seeing an increase in the number of nuns, N-O-N-E-S's, does the church yeah. need to open the doors and kind of not relax doctrinally? This is where you and I will get the hate mail, but just mm -hmm. to say, wait a minute, let's open our doors a little wider and who cares what they look like on the outside? What they yeah. need is a repair on the inside. Each of us does. Yeah. You know, Janet, I think my answer might surprise you. I think we've gone from maybe in some ways, not across the board, but in some ways we've gone from one extreme to another. Back yeah. in the day, the church was disconnected. The church was culturally out of sync. Now the church, well, we're so hip. We're so cool. We, you know, we've, we've got startup churches popping up everywhere. And, and we're, you know, you hear about the influence of churches and like Hollywood celebrities and they're attending this church or that church. Okay, look, let's be very careful. Because, you know, we don't want to pre uh, trade coolness for content, you know. So right. here's right. the cool thing. Here's the important thing about the Jesus movement. Oh, yeah, there were all those, you know, outward things of long hair and, the, and, the, and what was cool in that day, okay. But, but the thing was, when it was all said and done, we were at church. We were having Bible studies. We were worshiping God. We were sharing our faith, you know, and we had turned from that old lifestyle of drinking, drugs, etc., so sometimes I think the church, in an attempt to show its relevance, maybe lowers its standards a little bit. So we've got to deliver the goods. We have to deliver good theology without apology. You know, uh, five earmarks of the Jesus movement that I point out in my book are, number one, you know, heartfelt and passionate worship. But number two, Bible exposition. In all of our services, we studied the Bible, and that to me is vital, and that is one of the greatest things that is missing in a lot of churches today is the exposition of Scripture. So, yes, we want to reach this culture. Yes, we want to have our doors open to everyone and anyone because the church is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. 
A lot yes. of people need to come and find God. But having said that, we don't want them to stay the way that they are. We want to lead them to Christ and help them become true followers of Jesus. Pastors, I hope you were encouraged by that. Please preach expositionally, line upon line and precept mm-hmm. upon precept. The idea of saying, well, we're just going to talk about felt needs. Listen, we all got them, but I'll tell you, mm-hmm. the one who meets our needs is Jesus, and we learn about him mm-hmm. through his word. So that is such a good word, Greg. Let me take a break and come right back. There's so much more in the book, Jesus Revolution. Greg walks through history. Ellen does this in the beautiful third person, where Greg is literally telling us his story as he went through this Jesus res- revolution. But the the clarion call out of all of this is, if God can come and change a generation then, could he do it now? And the answer is a resounding yes. What takeaways can we take from that movement, that revolution, that we need to be practicing today? And you just got a very important one. Heartfelt worship, absolutely. But biblical exposition, A, must. Pastors, please never retreat from that. Back after this. Above them. You hear these songs and something stirs inside of you, doesn't it? When you think about it, he should be everything, our all in all, no matter what we experience. But there is that, as Blaise Pascal said so beautifully, in the heart of every man, a God-shaped void, and only a personal relationship with him can fill it. So here was this Jesus movement, this Jesus revolution in the 60s and 70s, and boy, it met the needs of so many hearts and transformed a generation. So many things I want to ask you in our last segment together, Greg. Talk to me about the last time that Chuck Smith preached and what his funeral was like. Well, now we have to fast forward many years. You know, the Jesus movement has come and gone effectively. It probably started in 69, maybe 70, and maybe it reached its peak at 73 or 4. And and the effects of it went on for years and years, but that sort of explosion aspect of it had a beginning, middle, and end. Well, fast forward now many years later, uh, Chuck is in his 80s, and he got lung cancer, of all things, sadly. And Chuck never smoked, but he got lung cancer. And it took its toll on him. and But, you know, Chuck was a trooper to the very end. And I went to see him uh, for what was his last sermon, or second to last sermon, I should say. He was at this point, uh, had to be in oxygen all the time. They wheeled him out in a wheelchair. They literally had to set him up on a stool behind his pulpit. And he just opened up the Word of God as he always had done. And, uh, and gave his message. And it was the following Sunday he gave what was his final message. And 
Then his service was held at the Honda Center, which is a large auditorium of, I think, 20,000-plus here in California. It was packed out. People watched it all around the world. And, and I had the privilege of bringing the message at his final service, his memorial service. And, you know, it's not often that a man changes a generation, but this is one man who did. God used him in a singular way. And, and I think the takeaway truth for people listening, especially pastors, is be the guy that does doesn't get in the way of what God is trying to do. Be the guy who welcomes it. Be the guy who's flexible. You know, Chuck had a proverb he liked to quote. I think it was his own, actually. He said, blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. And Chuck flexed with the times and, and let the Lord work. And, and it was a marvelous thing as a result. And even more to the point, Thousands of young men were inspired by his example and went on to start their own churches around the United States and around the world. So, you know, I, I think God can do this again. And I think, I don't think we can organize it. Nobody organized the Jesus movement. So mm-hmm. let's just say we should prepare the ground, or maybe let me restate it, make up a new word, prepare the ground. You know, mm. pray for it to come and start doing Jesus revolution things. I mentioned five takeaway truths from the Jesus revolution, and these are on my social media, all five, if you follow me on Instagram or Facebook. But number one, as I said, you know, heartfelt, passionate worship. Number two, Bible exposition. Number three, we believe Jesus was coming back again. And uh, and I think it's really important that we believe he could return at any time. It affects us in the way that we live. Number four, there was evangelism, which meant that we gave people an opportunity to come to Christ in every single service. And so I think that uh, that's very important. And the last thing is there was a sense of anticipation in the church. So, you know, I think we sometimes critique preachers for being boring, and there's no excuse for that. But having said that, you know, we just we don't just need anointed preaching. We need anointed listening. And we need to come to church with a real heart toward hearing what God has to say, bringing our attention with intention to hear the Word of God. So good. Let me go to the evangelism part. Obviously, this is the linchpin in the Harvest Crusades. Part of that is this public proclamation of the inner transformation. Mm -hmm. And we talk about baptism in the book and yours in particular. You had an experience recently, Greg, where there were just a boatload of people who made the decision to be baptized. Why can we point to the Jesus Revolution and say there might be a connection here? What was so frequently being done in the Pacific Ocean Mm -hmm. is now being done by more and more people today. Why is that? Well, I think if you want to see another Jesus revolution, do Jesus revolution things. And like, (laughs) let's say you were having problems in your marriage and you told me, uh, you know, the romance was gone. I would say, hey, go back and do romantic things again. You know, do the things you did when you were first going out with your husband or wife-to-be, and the emotions will catch up. In the same way, I think sometimes we overly mystify revival. And I say, let's just go and do revival-like things. So we decided to do a baptism at Pirate's Cove, just like we did in the Jesus Movement days. And then we had, I don't know, two, 3,000 people show up, and we baptized 550 people in one time. Mm-hmm. So uh, not all at the same time, but, you know, over a period of a couple of hours. But 
But I mean, that that was a Jesus movement thing, and and people picked up on it in the press. We shot some drone footage, which was very impressive. But but the point is, let's just start doing those things. Let's just engage yes. in evangelism. Let's believe Jesus is coming back again. Let's preach the word of God. Let's open our doors to people that don't know the Lord. You know, revival starts with you and me. Then it can go to our church and it can spread. The church needs a revival, but America needs a spiritual awakening. So let's focus on our part as the church and pray that the Lord will send revival to us as a church. But let's start with us as individuals. Amen and amen. Whitfield drawing the chalk circle around himself. Oh, Lord, bring revival and let it begin with me. That's where it always That's has right. to start. You end the book by saying yeah. that cultural Christianity is dead. Rest in peace. Mm-hmm. Some might say, well, wait a minute. Yeah. Wasn't the Jesus revolution inexorably connected to the culture? So how can we say that cultural Christianity is dead? I love your response in the book. Share it with our friends. Well, basically, when I say cultural Christianity, I mean that sort of... Um, American Christianity. Look, let me say this. I believe our country is built on Judeo-Christian principles. We have a rich spiritual heritage we should be thankful for. But, you know, maybe in the late 50s, there was this kind of idea that, you know, I'm an American. I believe in God. I go to church occasionally. And it was sort of reinforced in TV shows, kind of moral things. That's all fine. In fact, I wish we had more of that today. But I think there was a cultural Christianity where you would ask someone back in the day, are you a Christian? And most people would say yes, even if they weren't. You mentioned the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, the new category. Uh, That's more what it's like today, people that say they're not a Christian. So we don't need cultural Christianity. We need a Jesus revolution. Amen and amen, exclamation point. Greg, what a note to end this conversation on. Let me end the way I started. Thank you for the irreplaceable gift of your time. But thank you for challenging us to pray for revival and reminding us that it does, in fact, begin with us. If Jesus did it before, he's quite capable of doing it again if we submit ourselves. Thank you, Greg. See you next time, friends. Retractable claws up to one and a half inches long. Capable of jumping 36 feet. A roar that can be heard five miles away. The lion, king of the beasts. Picture yourself surrounded by several, like Daniel. He determined to pray, though he knew he would pay. Are we willing to face the lions of our culture? Be a Daniel. A challenge from Moody Radio. How long have you been a part of the Moody Radio family? Well, I've been listening to Moody since 1993. And I, I mean, I get up with Moody, I go to bed with Moody, and it just has been a blessing in my life for all these years. The teaching and the worship and Moody is a station that is really rooted in the Word of God and they're serious about who is God. Serious about God? That's us. And we're seriously grateful for listeners like you.